Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. If you are offering your gifts at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to term quickly with your accuser while you are going to him in court. Lest you accusers hand you over the judge, and the judge you to guard, and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This ends the scripture reading. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all. It's a kind of heavy day up in the balcony today. Good to see you guys. Yeah, well done. Well done. Y'all are representing up in the balcony. Um, so my name is Thomas Kuhn, like I mentioned earlier in the service, um, and I have been uh, filling in a little bit while Matt's on his sabbatical. Um, and so we're going through kind of a short series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, so we're kind of jumping around a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking uh, this morning at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Uh, and if you remember from last week, kind of uh, to put you in the, the right mindset about what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, if you've seen the show Stranger Things, the first season, this kid falls into this uh, alternate reality called the Upside Down. It's just like the normal world, except everything is decaying and it's ruled by monsters. And his friends, they're spending the entire season trying to pull him out of the upside down. Uh, that is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is trying to, at the same time, he's trying to convince us the world that we think we live in is actually the upside down. And that his kingdom is the right side up kingdom. And so he's inviting us to live in the right side up kingdom. And so I said we're looking at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Uh, immediately before this, Jesus has uh, just spent some time talking about uh, what he came to do, what his purpose is. Uh, he says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Um, he is saying that he came in order to give us the approval that we were designed to know, the approval that our first parents enjoyed in the garden. He came to give us that, and he calls us to live out of that and to live lives of righteousness. And something that I think is obvious about the Sermon on the Mount, but I think we miss is that it actually was a sermon, uh, that Jesus actually preached this sermon and people were listening to it in real time. So immediately before the passage that we're looking at today, these are the last words that Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then right after that, he goes to our passage where he talks about anger so I just want you to imagine what it would feel like to hear that from Jesus, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most righteous people that they're aware of, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a gut punch. And then Jesus goes and talks about anger. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at Jesus and anger. And so as we look at this passage, we're, we're just going to consider kind of three points or three movements. Uh, so the first one is Jesus and anger. The second is our anger problem, and the third, God's way of peace. So Jesus and anger, our anger problem, and God's way of peace. 
Uh, So I'm going to pause and pray for us before we get started. Uh, So we're going to take a moment uh, in silence and just kind of prepare our hearts, and then I'll pray and we can get started. So uh, join together with me. Let's take a moment of silence. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we are here and we long to hear from you. Uh, Lord, your word imparts light. So I pray, Lord, that you would uh, show us the light. Lord, that you would show us more clearly who you are. Uh, Lord, will you open our eyes? Will you help us to behold uh, what is wonderful and beautiful and true about you? Uh, Lord, send your spirit to shine light and to awaken us from our sleep. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first, let's consider uh, Jesus and anger. What does Jesus have to say about anger? Uh, If you would, look with me to the start of the passage that Don Marie just read for us. Jesus says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so Jesus, in this section, uh, he has just been talking about the way that he relates to the law, uh, the Old Testament scriptures. And for the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus is kind of using this formulaic way of teaching. He starts by saying, you have heard it said. And he's kind of summarizing this popular teaching on the Old Testament law. And then he goes on and says, but I, even I, or I myself, it's kind of an intensifier, but I myself say to you. And so Jesus does this throughout this passage, talking about various topics. And so what Jesus is teaching on here, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Uh, This is just the sixth commandment. This would have been something that every Jewish person would have affirmed. And then the second part, he says, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Uh, This is not found, this is not a direct quotation from anywhere in the Old Testament. It's more just kind of a summary Um, we're kind of led to think that maybe this was something that was a popular thing that a rabbi would say. Uh, You shouldn't murder, uh, and if you murder, then you will be liable to judgment. And what Jesus is doing by introducing this teaching is he is combating a specific understanding of the law, a specific way of teaching. Uh, Namely, it is kind of an outside-in view of the law. A view of the law such that, you know, if you see a commandment that says, you shall not murder, uh, this, this approach to the law wants to make that very easy for us to follow. So basically, all that that law is saying is don't kill people. And as long as you don't kill people, then you're good. If you kill someone, then you'll be liable to judgment. And what Jesus is doing is he is trying to peel that back. He's trying to peel back that tradition that has been added on top of Scripture. And he's opening up how broad this commandment is to us. He is combating this idea of of kind of like whittling down the law to where it is unrecognizable. Uh, Think about it this way. So uh, my wife's name is Molly. Uh, She's back there. She's great. You should meet her. Um, Imagine Molly calls me uh, one day and says, uh, I'm making this really amazing dinner for you. Uh, It's going to be really, really good. So what I want you to do is make sure that you don't eat an enormous lunch today. Uh, And so I'm like, okay, uh, I will not eat an enormous lunch. So what I decide to do is I'm going to eat six tiny lunches uh, because she said not to eat an enormous lunch. So I decide that I'm going to go to Cane's and I will get the three-finger combo instead of the usual Caniac. It's not an enormous lunch. It's small. 
Uh, then after that, I decide maybe I'll go to Runza, uh, but this time I'm not going to get the Frings, so I'm good there. Uh, maybe I'll stop at Juice Stop, feeling a little bit healthy, get a small one. Uh, keep adding a couple little small meals in there. And so I get home, and Molly's like, dinner, dinner is ready to go. It's this amazing feast, and I'm like, ugh, I'm not hungry. She's like, what, like what's the deal? I told, you not to eat, uh, I told you not to eat a big meal. I said, well, I didn't. I actually ate six small ones. Okay, here's the issue. What, what's the issue here? The issue, did I actually listen to what Molly said? Did I technically do what she said? Yes, technically. But did I actually do what Molly said? No. See, that is what Jesus is combating here. He is saying that there's this certain way of, of teaching and embodying the law that is so focused on the technicality that it misses completely the heart of what is being taught. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He is trying to clear away this way of teaching to get at the heart of what it means to, to not murder, to get at the heart of this commandment. And how, how does he sum it up? Uh, Jesus sums it up basically by saying that we are to die to our anger and live to make peace. We're to die to our anger and live to make peace. Uh, let's look at verse 22. Uh, so Jesus has said, you have heard that it was said, and then he says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus uh, is drilling down at the heart of the issue. He says, at the heart of this commandment, you shall not murder, is anger. It's anger. And I think it's important to point out, uh, in the New Testament, there are two words for anger, one of them just kind of means anger, like how we would say it in English. The other one means something like rage or contempt. And the word that is used here is the second one. Jesus is referring to rage or contempt. Uh, and it's also, this word is uh, what's called a present participle. Uh, if you're a nerd, you would know what that means. Uh, but basically what that means is that it conveys ongoing action. So it's kind of everyone who is being angry with his brother, or kind of like we would say maybe stewing on their anger. Jesus is not saying here that you cannot feel anger. On some level, anger, it's a response to the injustice that we see around us. Uh, oftentimes that can be unhealthy, but there is such a thing as righteous anger. What Jesus is combating here is unrighteous anger, something more akin to uh, a rage or contempt. And so Jesus is saying that this sort of rage, this sort of anger, it is a result of the same spiritual sickness as murder. And he goes on, he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, the, the ESV here says whoever insults his brother. The NIV, I think, says whoever says raka. Uh, raka, it's an Aramaic word that just means, it means idiot. Jesus is saying, whoever calls his brother an idiot is going to be liable to the council. The council would have been the Sanhedrin, kind of like the Supreme Court. And then whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, what, what is Jesus doing here? Remember, Jesus is combating this shrinking of the law. And so he is expanding our view of it. He is saying that, that not only uh, does, does murder lead to judgment, actually that sort of like inner rage and contempt towards someone leads to judgment. That sort of uh, calling someone an idiot, calling a brother an idiot, uh, you're liable to the Supreme Court. 
Uh, and, if you're, and if you're saying to someone you're a fool, like you, you are just worthless, then you are liable to God's judgment in hell. Jesus is, is he's awaking us from our slumber. I put this quote on the, uh, the liturgy email from Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, he says it like this. He says, we tend to treat the damage we do with our anger very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. That is why Jesus invades our moral slumber by telling us how serious this is in the sight of God. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is looking at our anger and he's showing us our body count. He's showing us how, how our anger actually kills people. How our anger actually is the same thing as murder. That our anger towards other people, our unjust anger, it murders the soul. So in naming our anger, our rage, our contempt for what it is, Jesus is calling us to die to our anger. But not only that, there's a positive aspect to it. Jesus is calling us to live to make peace. Uh, So often when we think about what it means to be a a righteous person or a good Christian person, we generally think in negative terms. It's just stop doing this. Uh, But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, yes, stop doing this, but also start doing this. So what does Jesus tell us to start doing? He tells us to live to make peace. And he does this primarily by giving us kind of two examples at the end of this passage. Uh, The first one's in verses 23 and 24, and it has to do with kind of a religious context. And then the last one is in verses 25 and 26, and it has to do with a legal context. Uh, They're both kind of communicating the same thing, so I just really want to drill down on the first one. Jesus says this, starting in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus here is uh, kind of putting to mind this idea of religious devotion. He's talking to us about coming to the temple and offering a sacrifice. This would have been uh, kind of the peak for a Jewish person at the time. Uh, it would have been a, a good thing. It was, in a lot of ways, the most important thing that a Jewish person could do. But what Jesus is calling us to, on some level, if we really understand it, it kind of feels a little outrageous. Like, it might be legitimate if Jesus said, listen, if you're going and offering something at the altar, and you remember that you have something against a brother, then you should go and be reconciled before you offer. On some level, that makes sense to us. But what Jesus is saying is actually a lot more intense than that. He's not just saying, if you remember, he's saying, actually, if you remember that your brother has something against you, then you should stop what you're doing, you should go and try to make peace with your brother, and then come back and make your offering. And to just kind of like dial up the intensity a little bit, when Jesus is preaching these words, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, where the only altar to offer a sacrifice would have been in all of Israel. So what he's saying to these people who are hearing him is, if you leave and you make the week-long journey to go down to the altar to offer a sacrifice, and you remember that one of your neighbors has something against you, it would be better for you to stop, make the week journey back, go be reconciled, make the week journey back, and then offer your sacrifice. That is the intensity that Jesus is calling us to. That is how much he wants us to value other people He is saying that our worship is pointless if it does not produce reconciliation with others. 
it's not enough to just cease to be angry. We need to actively pursue peace insofar as we can. And if we're honest, I think this goes against the grain of what we kind of instinctively want to do in situations of dealing with our own anger or someone else's anger towards us. Like if you experience someone having anger towards you, if you're anything like me, you tend to kind of withdraw. You don't want to move towards them. You want to withdraw and kind of protect yourself. And what Jesus is encouraging us to do is to move towards people in that situation. He's encouraging us to move towards people in their anger towards us. So he's calling us to forgo our self-protective impulses and to live as peacemakers with both friends and enemies. Okay, so that is a difficult teaching, isn't it? It's difficult. That's a high bar. And I think we can have various responses to this. I think some of us might find this sort of teaching beautiful. That it really would be beautiful if people lived in this way. Uh, but others of us, and I'd be willing to bet a lot of us actually, we think some, like somewhere deep down in us, that's a little bit soft or weak. That living in this sort of way, there, there's something in us that, that finds this sort of way of living unrealistic. Like that's, I, I'm supposed to go be reconciled to my brother because he has a problem with me? Like boundary, that's not my issue. Like, I don't need to deal with that. I think there's something in us that kind of pushes back on Jesus's teaching here. And there's three things that I can think of, three reasons why we might struggle with what Jesus says here. First, I think it's because anger is scary. Anger is scary. Uh, I don't have to tell those of you who've been on the receiving end of anger that it's not a pleasant experience. I know some of us in this room uh, know what it's like to be raised by a deeply angry parent. By a parent who, no matter what we do, it's not going to be good enough. By a parent who has said things to us that, that wounds us, that we'll never be able to recover from. Receiving anger is scary. It, it, it can feel like your soul has been murdered. It's almost impossible to come back from. So receiving it is scary, but I also think on the flip side, facing our own anger is scary. Facing our own anger, being honest about it. Uh, what is anger? Remember, we, we said earlier that anger on some level, it, it's kind of the natural response to assault or injustice, that sort of thing. It's a burst of energy that kind of compels us to do something. And I mean, if you're anything like me, sometimes you just want to resist being compelled to do things. Sometimes you don't want to deal with the anger that you feel. And maybe for you, the reason of that is, is a fear of people's response. A fear of the way that people might respond to you if you respond, if you, if you name your anger. Or maybe it's a doubt that your experience matters, and so you just kind of stuff it down. Or maybe it's, it's kind of this martyr complex that, that you just think all that you need to do is take people's anger, and you just respond to them in kindness. I think anger is scary, and it can lead us to kind of pushing it down, not dealing with us. On the flip side, though, anger works. That's the second thing. Anger works. It's effective. Uh, what do I mean by this? Uh, so it's March Madness. Uh, so an easy kind of illustration of this point is the great basketball coach Bobby Knight. Uh, Bobby Knight was a longtime coach of the Indiana Hoosiers basketball team. Uh, he is, I think, the fourth winningest basketball coach in, in, in college basketball history. Um, 
But if you know anything about Bobby Knight, you know that he had a long list of behavioral issues. Uh, I was just looking into it, and here's just some highlights. Uh, In 1981, he allegedly shoved an LSU fan into a trash can during March Madness. Uh, 1985, he famously tossed a chair across the floor during a loss to Purdue. That one's pretty legendary. Uh, In 1999, he was investigated for assault and battery at a restaurant where he allegedly choked a man. Uh, And in the year 2000, he was accused of choking a basketball player. uh, And then footage actually showed up showing him choking said basketball player. And what happened? He was fined $30,000. Uh, He had to sit out three games and then was given a zero-tolerance policy, a.k.a. he kept his job after there was actual footage of him choking someone. Why why would this happen? Why would this sort of thing happen? Well, uh, the reason might be that he was a three-time NCAA champion, that he had won the Big Ten 11 times. He was an incredible coach. Right, why do I tell this story? It's not to beat up on Indiana, though I'm sure the, the you know, Nebraska ball fans in the room would not hate me doing that sort of thing. Uh, what I'm, what I'm kind of trying to point out here is that we are prone to making peace with anger because it gives us what we want. We're prone to making peace with anger because it gives us what we want. We might not want to have this amazing basketball program, and so we overlook things like that, but I bet a lot of us want to have uh, a spouse that only ever affirms us. And so we respond in anger to shut down any critique we might get from them. Or a lot of us want to have well-behaved children. And so we crush them when they act out. A lot of us want to have productive employees. And so we create an environment of fear where they will never disappoint us. You see, we make peace with anger because it gives us what we want. So anger is scary. Anger works. And then third, I want to suggest that another reason we might struggle with Jesus' teaching is because anger feels good. Anger feels good. Uh, You don't have to look very far to find uh, an illustration of this point. You open up Twitter, Facebook. We're an outrage culture. We don't just disagree with people. We vilify them. We can't just disagree with someone and remain in relationship with them easily. We're kind of going against the grain if we do that sort of thing. Uh, If someone critiques something that you do, the easier path is to call them an idiot than to actually engage with what they're saying. And and if we're honest with ourselves, there's kind of something deeply satisfying about destroying people that we disagree with. Alan Jacobs is a professor at Baylor University. He says this. He says, The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack for moralists. There's no high like you get from punishing malefactors. There's no high like you get from punishing malefactors. Uh, We see this everywhere, and we see this in our own selves, don't we? This is not limited to the left. This is not limited to the right. Uh, Can you honestly say that that there is not some part of your soul deep down that feels it is a little bit delicious to just destroy someone that you disagree with. We love that. We love that feeling. It feels good to be angry. So there are a lot of reasons why we might struggle with Jesus' call to die to our anger and to live to make peace. Like we said, anger can be scary. Anger works. Anger feels good. 
But how can we be the sort of people that Jesus described? How can we be the sort of people who, who die to our anger and who live to make peace? How can, we, how can we not only just stop being angry, stop raging and, and, and nursing contempt towards other people, but live positively as peacemakers? Well, fortunately, we're not left to figure this out on our own. God has made a way of peace. So let's look at God's way of peace. Um, God has made a way of peace, and in order to see this, we need to see what God himself does with his anger. Uh, you're probably familiar with the idea if you uh, have read the Bible before or interacted with someone who might be maybe of a little bit more of a skeptical uh, bent. There, there's a popular idea that uh, the God of the Bible, specifically maybe in the Old Testament, is kind of a rageaholic. Uh, that God is angry all the time, that he's constantly just smoking people all throughout the Bible. And then maybe there's kind of this counterpoint that the New Testament Jesus is gentle and meek. I, I would argue that there's maybe some things that you would see in Jesus that would be pretty difficult as well if you're, if you're really paying attention. My point is not to, to really explain all of that, but I just want to point out that there's this, this struggle that we have with God's anger when we see it in the Bible. And there are several instances that I can think of, just two examples, uh, maybe one of God's anger towards the nations and one of God's anger towards his own people. Uh, the first one, God's anger to the nations, in, in Nahum chapter 3, God says to Nineveh, uh, this uh, kind of this city that is filled with injustice, he says, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt. Sounds pretty angry. And then God says to his people Israel in Numbers 14, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. That's God to his own people. So God, he clearly, there, there is anger that we see, but, but God's anger, it, it's different. God is angry, yes, but his anger in each of these cases is over sin and injustice. His anger is different from ours, but I think we see this difference primarily in what God does with his anger. What does God's anger lead him to? And we see the answer to this uh, in the one who spoke the words that we are considering this morning. If we want to understand what God does with his anger, we need to look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, we see that God's, God's anger led him to make peace. God's anger led him to send Jesus. Uh, John 3.16, of course, is probably the most popular verse in the Bible. Uh, but the one after it, John 3.17, I think captures this perfectly. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God, looking at the world that is filled with sin, looking at the world that is filled with injustice, looking at the world that is filled with people who are turned away from him, instead himself comes into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. God came to make a way of peace in Jesus. And, it, and it's not just this thing that, that is exterior to us only. There's an internal reality that can come from this. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is a, a deep reconciliation that can happen here, such that, that we, in our, in our unjust anger and rage and contempt, can actually be reconciled to God. That we can enjoy peace with God, where we are given the righteousness of Jesus and our sin is put upon Jesus. And when this story sinks in, 
we will more and more die to our anger. We can have the courage to step back and we can actually face our anger. We can read Jesus' words without crumbling and trying to convince ourselves that we're actually not that bad. We can acknowledge, yeah, it is that bad. But we don't have to be afraid. And when we don't have to be afraid, when we know that we're secure in Jesus, we can ask the, the really the most important question with anger, why am I so angry? What, is, what, am I, what do I want here? What am I longing for that I'm not getting? Because we're secure in Jesus, we can ask, why am I so angry? And we can say no to anger even, even though it works, even though it might give us the thing that we think we need. We can say no to anger even if it feels good. You see, we are united to Christ in his death. So in the truest possible sense, if you are in Christ, you are dead to your anger, rage, and contempt. That is who you are. But when this story sinks in, we can also live more and more to make peace. When we see that Jesus rejected self-protection for us, we can become people who live to make peace. When we know that the peace that we have in Jesus is solid, we don't have to withdraw into places of self-protection. We can instead leave ourselves open to injury because we know that we are safe in Jesus. We can move towards friends. We can move towards enemies. See, the cross of Jesus assures us in the deepest places of our soul that God is not at war with us. And if you know in the deepest place that God is not at war with you, you can cease to be at war with others. So if you're here today and you find yourself uh, convicted with anger, uh, if you look at yourself honestly and you say, you know, I'm an angry person and I don't know what to do about it. If you're anything like me, the impulse is to turn inward. The impulse is to try to perfect yourself. The impulse is to try to maybe convince yourself that you're actually not that bad. Uh, what I want to encourage you to do with that conviction is to turn and to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and see what God did in order to bring you back to him. And the closer that you get to Jesus, the more that you can become a person who has this deep beauty and righteousness and peace in your heart. And that will overflow into the way that you live. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you have uh, dealt with us uh, at the heart level. Lord, that you uh, did not just um, speak to us and tell us to uh, figure our morality out and then you'll want to deal with us. Uh, but no, Lord, that you uh, looked down upon us and you, you came down to us by your grace. Uh, Lord, and you saw us in our unjust anger, in our rage, in our contempt. And Lord, that you, you did everything that was necessary. You called us yours. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the great provision that you have made uh, in Jesus. And Lord, that in looking at Jesus, that our, our unjust anger would melt. Um, that we could become people, actually, who, who really do uh, embody this peacemaking impulse that you have called us to have in Jesus. All these things we ask in his name. Amen.